You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for Meadowbrook Church in Cheyenne, Wyoming. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book, written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaim with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and he took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals for you were slain and you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Amen. So Ed, uh, Dr. Ed Hardesty, I call him Ed. (laughs) Dr. Ed Hardesty, we, oh, you may be seated, by the way. Um, Dr. Ed Hardesty, he's been, he's pastored for over 40 years. He's been a pastor. He has taught uh, the Bible on the college level for, is it 30 years? Yeah, 30 years. He has led numerous is- tours in Israel, and uh, we're hoping that we'll be able to do one in March. He, uh, he has uh, his PhD in, was it, what, technically what is it, Ed? Is it, I keep saying Jewish antiquities, but Jewish studies, Jewish studies yep. Yeah, just call him Indy, Indiana Jones. Now I'm joking. Um, but more than all that, uh, we, I first met Ed in 1994 in a doctrine class at Philadelphia College of the Bible. It is now Karen, Uni- Karen University. That's when we first met, and he has been a father to me. He is a father to me. He is uh, a mentor to me. He is the one I call Every time I have questions, every time I want to lament, every time I'm not sure what I should do, he's the guy I go to. And, um, and so I am so thrilled that he is able to be here and he can open the scriptures with you uh, this morning. And so, Ed, could you come and open the scriptures with us? So if you need any good key stories, I got them. (laughs) It's a joy to be here, truly. 
And when he calls me and asks me questions, I give him the same answer pretty much every time. I don't know. What are you asking me for? (laughs) Thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for this time together. And thank you for allowing me the privilege of getting together with uh, my third son. The other two are natural born. He's spiritually born. I truly feel that way. Uh, I want to get into the book. Uh, That's all I do, whether it's in a classroom or in a pulpit or across a table with milk stains or coffee or donuts or whatever it might be. That's my job. Some years ago, one of my mentors, Howard Hendricks at Dallas Seminary, said he was uh, leaving a service or he was preaching and two ladies were walking out in front of him and they didn't know he was right behind them after he had finished preaching. And one is turning to the other one and said, I don't know why everybody thinks he's such a big deal. All he did was explain the Bible. (laughs) He said she didn't know it, but that's one of the greatest compliments she could have given me. Uh, That's what I do. That's what God has called me to do. Open the book and unpack it. I don't have any great expertise in one way or another. There is one indispensable rule of Bible study for anybody, anywhere, anytime, at any place. Total reliance upon the Holy Spirit of God. Spiritual truth is spiritually discerned. We can fill our heads with all sorts of facts, and all it does is make us fatheads. I've lived part of my life for 30 years in academia. It's not the real world. It's a very artificial environment, but it's also a necessary environment. But this is where things happen. You folks are the real deal. When church is over, the church gets up and goes home, because the church is us, the ones bought and paid for by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not a building, it's not bricks and mortar, it's not an organization, it's organic. The church is a woman. Gentlemen, it's your only shot at this, you better not blow it, okay? (laughs) She's a woman, it's organic, it's not an organization chart, it's not a bunch of uh, denominational distinctives. So when we come together as brothers and sisters in Christ, we come together for one object, for God to reveal himself to us, to change our lives that we might impact this world. Because at this moment, at this time, until Jesus comes again, we are his hands, we are his feet, we are his eyes. I struggle with why he chose to do it that way. I don't understand it, using the likes of you and me. But that is his chosen methodology. Just like in ancient days, God chose Israel to be his signpost, his demonstration of his love and his compassion, his graciousness before the whole world. Individuals within the commonwealth of Israel, the chosen people of God, they began to be that person, that entity that he constructed and brought forth on the planet. But by and large, as a nation, they never fulfilled that purpose. They will do so. Just stay tuned. The story's not over yet. But in the meantime, as they've been set aside for a while, that mouthpiece, that instrument of his usage, his implement of grace on this planet, is you and me. So one of the things that we need to understand, if we're ever going to really grasp our mission in the New Testament is all the portraits and pictures that point to that and the fulfillment of Christ that we see in the Old Testament. So to get to 
what we need to look at this morning, we need to spend some time back in Ruth. One of my favorite books, a place I've spent a great deal of time. Um, and if I tend to get a little academic every now and then, just look at me with a puzzled look on your face or raise your hand or don't get up and walk out and leave. Just, you know, <laughs> I'll get over it in a few minutes and get back to what's going on. Ruth is a marvelous little book that comes to us in a setting that is not so marvelous. Three times in the book of Judges, the same comment is made. There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Ruth is in that setting, probably very early in the period of Judges, just after the conquest had taken place. When you look at the people involved and the way the, the society was constructed, it seems very, very early in that embryonic stage of when an amorphous mass of nomads are being converted into a nation that's suitable for God's purposes. How'd you like that, to come out of Egypt after 400 years? What do you know about running a country, about caring for one another, about building infrastructure, about handling things with your neighbors? You've been a slave all this time. And then you spend 40 years in the wilderness and into the land, occupying cities you didn't build, drinking from wells you didn't dig, eating from vineyards and fields you didn't plant, living in houses that weren't there, when you were a nomad in the wilderness, and all of a sudden you're supposed to be a nation. Things don't work real well. One of the promises in the covenant that God gave Moses at Sinai was that if you follow me, if you move in that light, if, you're, if your thought patterns, your priorities, your whole lifestyle is patterned after what I have told you is righteous, and fleeing from what is unrighteous, I will bless you. I will feed you. I'll give you security, and I'll give you victory over all your foes. And what was the situation as the book of Ruth opens? There was a famine in Bethlehem, where this gentleman and his family lived. His name is Elimelech. His wife's name is Naomi. Naomi. They have two sons, Machlan and Kilian. Uh, some of you ladies might want to write some of these names down and save them for your firstborn. <laughs> Machlan means sickly. Who'd name their kid sickly? It gets worse. Kilion's name in, in English means puny <laughs> or never do well, that kind of thing. Now, understand, Elimelech, Elimelech, means God is my king. So the guy named God is my king lives in Bethlehem, Bethlehem. What's Beit Lechem? The house of bread. And he wants to take his family, Naomi, his wife. Naomi means pleasant. <laughs> okay? They're going to take them out of Bethlehem and go someplace else to get food because there's a famine in the house of bread. What's wrong with this picture? Why is there a famine in the house of bread? What was the promise? Follow me. I'll feed you, I'll clothe you, I'll take care of you, I'll make you secure, you'll be victorious. They're none of the above at this particular point, which gives you some notion of what the spirituality of Bethlehem was in that day. So Elimelech takes his family and moves to where there is bread. Where's that? Moab, a country just across the Rift Valley, the Jordan River, and the Dead Sea from where he lived in Bethlehem. 
Where'd Moab come from? One of the son of the grandsons of a fellow named Lot. Should have been his son, but he committed incest with his daughters, and two boys were born to that incestuous relationship with both his daughters, Ammon and Moab. Moab is a country founded on incest. So the guy who said, whose name is God is my king takes his family from the house of bread where there is no bread and takes them to the land of incest to feed them. He has effectively changed how his kids will grow up, who his sons will marry, what kind of input's going to be in their life, how they are going to be tutored by the society all around them. Really not a good idea. Bad idea from every triangle. Well, they both get married. They take Moabite wives. Of course, they live in Moab. The Moabite wives join the family and both sons die as well as the father. And now Ruth and two daughter-in-laws are without headship, without hope, without help. Understand, there's no welfare system. There's no hierarchy. There's no jobs for women. If you're without headship in such a land, you're in serious trouble. You're going to end up either indentured as someone's servant or sold into some sort of slavery or become a woman of the street in order just to stay alive. So Naomi decides to return back to Bethlehem because she hears, now there's food in Bethlehem. I don't know if this goes together, but when Elimelech lives in Bethlehem, there's no bread. Elimelech leaves, now they've got bread. Was he part of the problem? Most likely, because you can see it in the choices that he has made. One of the daughters, Orpha, decides she's going to stay with her family. That's when Naomi told him, we have no help. I can't have more sons to marry you. There's no way this can work out. So Orpha goes back home to her family, but Ruth makes those marvelous statements that have rung down through the centuries and come to you and me in, in, in perfect cadence for us. No, no. I will never leave you. Where you go, I go. Your people are my people. Your God is my God. Where you die, I will be buried. Nothing should separate us for, except for death. So she follows back to Bethlehem, neither women having any headship or covering. And as they approach town, the ladies of the town see them afar off, and they begin to say those things that are quite common when, when you have a small town that everybody knows everybody else. Here comes Naomi. Naomi's back. Naomi's back. Now remember, Naomi's name is Pleasant. All the women come up to her. Naomi, Naomi, you're back, you're back. She says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. Because the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. I've lost a husband. I've lost two sons. I've lost a daughter-in-law. But Ruth is with me. How is God going to provide for these two women without headship and without hope? Who's going to marry a foreign woman utterly against the law from the land of incest? And how is Naomi ever going to restore some security in her life? That's all God stuff. That's totally God every time. 
Ruth goes to work in the fields. It was a practice in ancient Israel whereby people could supply for themselves. You went behind the people as they harvested whatever crop was present, and you were allowed to pick up what was left behind. But I have to say this, you know, the academic in me rises up at this point. You know, oh good, she was able to get supper, and she's able to feed her mother-in-law, and they're going to be okay. Now, wait, wait a minute. First you've got to pick up all that, then you've got to thresh it, then you've got to separate the husk from the grain and winnow it so that all the tough stuff blows away. Now you have wheat? Now you can eat? No, you can't eat. Because now you've got to build a little oven called a taboon. And when you build that out of clay and fire that, then you have to get fuel for that. Then you have to somehow make cakes so you can eat them, meal cakes. You don't have any oil, you're destitute. So what do you do? You follow the people in the olive tree oils, uh, the olive tree fields, and when they have harvested, you pick up what's left, you crush the olives, you separate the pits and the skin and the water and the pulp from the oil, and then you mix the oil with the grain that you just had to grind by hand, make meal, make cakes, put them in the oven that you made, now you eat. There's no grocery store. There's no 7-Eleven. There's no place to pick up something already coming to you in a styrofoam tray with cello wrap around it. No, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> you got to go get it. How are they going to stay alive? God has arranged that the field in which she worked belonged to a rather generous man by the name of Boaz. Boaz means strength within. He's older. He's never married. Ruth works in the field gleaning, and he's watching, and everybody knows the reputation. This is the one that stayed with Naomi. This is the one that loves her like her blood daughter. And Naomi's reputation and Ruth's reputation is a marvelous one in the community. They are righteous, upright women who work hard to stay alive, and they are not to be trifled with. And Boaz begins to protect her. As she goes home with the things that she had garnered and gathered, Naomi is amazed and she wants to know, where did you go to get all this? Who's protecting and watching over you? She says, well, the man's name is Boaz. Boaz? Boaz is a close kin to us. See, here's the problem. Land is allotted to each of the tribes of Israel, and within the tribes, each major family. Within the major families, to the sons go the inheritance. And it's passed on from generation to generation to generation. When Elimelech leaves, his land lays fallow, or somebody else is harvesting off his land. He's dead. His sons are dead. There's no one to carry on the hereditary rights to this land. So therefore, there's no way that they can actually function on the land that belongs to them by fiat from God. How does God handle such things? What does the law have to say about that? You need someone to redeem your future and your inheritance. That redemption in the old days is called the Gael. That is a kinsman redeemer. A kinsman redeemer has to be a number of things in order to qualify. Number one, he has to be the closest kin to you, the closest blood relative. Number two, he has to have the ability 
to redeem the land. He's got to have the purchase price. He's got to be able to pay for it. Number three, he's got to be free to do so. He can't be encumbered by anything else. Number four, he's got to follow through. And when he follows through, he has to assume all the responsibilities that go with that redeeming of the land. So Naomi simply says to Ruth, go back. Relate yourself to Boaz. He understands. He knows. And he will rise to the occasion. He will, in fact, redeem. So Boaz, in chapter 4, is at the front gates of the city of Bethlehem. What's so important about that? That's where all major transactions, where all contracts are done, where all commerce takes place. The deals are made. In the gates, behind the gates, are chambers in which are found all the documents, the deeds, the mortgages, the things of that nature. Like the county seat in any, place, in any principality in our country. You know, when you buy a house, what happens? Somebody's got to do a title search. And the title search and what is found better match the deed that's on register with the county clerk or whoever's doing that. And that's exactly what's going on in that day. There is a sealed document that validates and verifies who has the right to this property and this inheritance. And there is an open document where all the transactions are recorded. And when such a deal is being struck as this, both of those documents better match each other. And the one who has the right to open the sealed document better have that right, or he is immediately ostracized by the community and the deal's off completely. So we read in chapter 4 of Ruth, Boaz went up to the gate and sat down, and behold, the close relative of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. He said to him, turn aside, friend, sit down here. There's another relative that's closer. So he turned aside, he sat down, and he took ten men of the elders of the city, and he said, sit down here, and to the court and the elders, he said, we are your witnesses. They had to have a quorum. You've got to have ten men in good standing in the community in order for a transaction of this magnitude to be legal and to be binding on all the parties involved. Well, when the may, Lord, may the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, like both who built the house of Israel. So the people say, because as the transaction progresses, you find out that the other kinsman, the closer guy, he's a kinsman, he has the wherewithal to do it, but he's not free to act. Because if he acquires more, that means the inheritance already set in place for his sons and daughters is messed with. It's got to change. So he says, Boaz, I can't do it. I'm not free to act. You are the next in line. Will you assume that? Yes, I will. With all the rights and responsibilities that come with it. And all the elders in the court and the people round about validate that that message is clear. What have they done? They take the open documents and they compare them to the deeds and they see that Boaz is the right guy. Deal is closed. Boaz buys the land. Boaz secures a future for Naomi and for Ruth because that was part of the deal. Whoever gets the land has to marry Ruth. Boaz marries Ruth. Why would he marry a foreigner? Why would he be given to do that? Because that is inappropriate, according to the law of Moses. Who's Boaz's mother? During the conquest of Israel, 
Boaz's father was one of those men, and he married a lady that he met in the midst of the conquest of the country. Her name was Rahab, the full-service madam of the brothel in Jericho. She also made a same commitment, where you go, I go. Your God is my God. Your people are my people. Why would this young man be disposed to look kindly on a foreigner? Because his mama was a foreigner. There's a genealogy that stretched out for us at the end of Ruth. That genealogy includes these folks. And it's not till you get to the genealogies in Matthew that you find out who Salmon's wife was, who Boaz's mom is. Think about that. Because out of Ruth and Boaz comes a young man named Ovid. Ovid has sons and daughters too. One of his sons' name is Jesse. Jesse has eight sons, the youngest of which's name is David. And from David comes our Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. In the line of Jesus is the Madam of Jericho and a little gal from a land founded on incest. And before that, the whole matter of Tamar and Judah that we don't have any time to get into. But he's in exactly the same line. Out of that union, out of that catastrophe, out of that disaster, comes a kinsman redeemer. And that kinsman redeemer gives birth to, 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 to the real kinsman redeemer. Do you see the portrait? Do you see the picture that's fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you see a land that's blessed and now famined? Do you see people using their own devices and heading in 15 different directions? What's expedient, what seems the right thing to do, but not the right thing to do according to God's mindset? Do you see folks doing the best they can, and it all falls apart, and it's all shattered, and it's catastrophic? And then he reaches in, and his kinsman redeemer turns it around. Now Naomi has a grandson that she assumes is her son, the son of her redemption. And he has a son, and he has a son, and he has a son of the true redeemer. Fast forward, if you will, to Revelation chapter 5. All of that was to say this. <laughs> There's a scroll that is front and center in this particular account, cataloged for us through the eyes of John in real time as he was transported to the heavenlies and saw what was going on as earth was coming to its conclusion. In real time, he sees these things. Now, Revelation is a unique book in that you have chronology, event after event, but every now and then, there's a hiatus, there's a rest stop, and everybody backs away, and the, the narrator here, in this case, John, he, he gives you the bigger seed. He lets you know what else is going on from heaven's perspective rather than the events that are chronological on earth. And that's one of these step-back looks. During the time that earth is beginning to have the pangs of its last wrath, and God is about to retake his possession, 
There is a scenario that takes place that John is given privy to in the heavenlies itself. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, that would be Father God, I saw in him a book written inside and on the back sealed up with seven seals. Okay, here's the academic side of me that comes out immediately, okay? Bear with me, it's not too long. Book? They didn't have any books then. They don't have any books now. It's a scroll already. The word is biblos. It can be a book or it can be a scroll. Written on the front and the back? No, you don't write on the back of a scroll. It's an animal skin. And if it's papyrus, which is first century writing material, you don't write on the back of that either. Because the fibers of papyrus are going this way on the writing surface, and on the back they're up and down holding it together. You don't write on that. How should this be read? I think they put the comma in the wrong place. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book or scroll written on the inside and on the back sealed up with seven seals. See what I'm saying? Rolled up, sealed. Like you would take a letter and drip wax and put your signet in it or some really cool little item, whatever, to identify it as you. And you know what hasn't been opened because nobody's broken that seal. You can tell right off the bat. That's the document of record. That's what Boaz had to open at the city gate in Bethlehem. Only this is the real one that that was simply a picture of and an everyday occurrence. We are in the throne room. This is the city gate. And God the Father has the deed of record in his hand. The deed for the mortgaged planet Earth that fell in Genesis chapter 3. A usurper has occupied the Father's turf. Fallen people have lived in unrighteousness in the midst of his land and his people. And it's time for redemption to finally be completed. It's time for that which began with Jesus and was clinched at the cross in his resurrection to come full circle. And the Father is about to take back the land that has been usurped from him, that has been the enemy's turf for so many centuries. Who has the right to open the scroll? Who has the right to break the seals? Well, inside on the back, sealed up with seven seals, and I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? John knows what this is. John's been in the city gate. John's had deeds of record in his day. He's watched contracts being done. He's watched commerce take place. and knows exactly what's going on. Only instead of the normalcy of everyday life and commerce and contractual arrangements, this is the big one. This is the giant one. This is the real one that all else is simply a tiny portrait and pointing towards. No one in heaven and on the earth was able to open the book or to look into it? That's John's assessment. Oh no. His heart breaks. His countenance falls. All is lost. There's no redeemer. There's no kinsman. Who is worthy? Who could possibly be worthy? I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, I think not. (laughs) Listen here, son. 
You don't know the whole story, do you? Fasten your seatbelt, Jack. We're about to go. Stop weeping. Stop crying. This is not time for lament. This is time for awesome joy. This is a time when it's all coming together. This is a time when all those prayers of the saints that the brothers have surrounding the throne are about to be answered. How many times have you and I spent way too much time saying, when are you going to turn this around, Lord? When are you going to straighten this up? When are you going to vindicate your name? When are you going to set things right? When are the scales of righteousness and justice finally going to be tipped in your favor? You're the Holy One. You can do it. I know you're able to do it. I just don't know when. When is that time? Right there. Right there. Stop weeping. Behold. The lion that is of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has overcome so as to be the qualified and validated kinsman redeemer. To be the root of David, he's overcome to open the book and all of its seven seals. And he begins the process. I saw between the throne and the four living creatures, the elders, there he was. A lamb. A lamb standing, but a lamb that had been slain, standing again. He's got seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. What? That's strange. Well, just check out Isaiah in chapter 11, because Isaiah explains that he's not talking about seven separate spirits, seven separate horns. He's talking about, this is the powerful one, and this is the one who has the full-orbed ministry of everything the Spirit of God makes available to mankind. He lists seven of them. The first one is, he is Yahweh, the self-existent God. The I am that I am. He is God's wisdom. That's the second characteristic that Isaiah outlines for us. He is the one who has understanding. He sees where no one else sees and understands not only what is, but all the possibilities that are also accrued to that. He is strength in its essence, the Zazach one, the one who is absolute in every sense. He is the counselor, he is the wisdom of God, he is God's knowledge, and he is the awesomeness of God, which causes us to fear. Not fear trembling, running away, hiding in a corner somewhere. Fear that drops your jaw puts you on your knees before the Almighty One and has you like a four-year-old kid for the rest of eternity going, wow, you are so much more than I ever thought, I ever imagined. Huh. What happens next? Well, I saw between the throne the four living creatures. Here's that one who comes forward. He takes the book, the scroll, out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures around the throne, the 24 elders who fell down before the Lamb, each one had a harp and a golden bowl full of the incense, which are your prayers. Never a single one has been lost. Does he collect them? Oh, yeah. 
Will they be answered? Absolutely. Every single one. And what's the ultimate prayer? How long? When will you turn us around? When will you vindicate your name? When will you rule and reign? They sang a new song. I wonder what this singing of heaven is like. My wife has an aunt long home with the Lord. Pastor's wife, never had any kids of her own. But she had a whole bunch of kids because she nurtured pretty much every kid she ever laid eyes on. She was just one of those women that could turn a piece of dry toast and a glass of water into a party. You know what I'm talking about? Kind of like Hannah. <laughs> on and on it went, this gal. Husband died long ahead of her. Rachel and I used to visit her, especially after she became infirm, had heart trouble, and was slowly dying herself. And one of the days we visited her up in her bedroom in her little bitty house in Baltimore, she said, I need to tell you something. i got to tell somebody. She says, don't think I'm crazy. I really am in my right mind. I'm not gone yet. <laughs> you know how that works when you get older? If you don't, you will. Stay tuned. Okay? <laughs> she said, you know how I love music? Well... I wanted to know what the music of heaven was like. So I've been asking the Lord for months now, would you let me know what the music in heaven's going to be like? She said, and I was reading my Bible, and all of a sudden, I heard this amazing music. And it was like the Lord just cracked open heaven just for a second. And then it was gone. I said, what did it sound like? She said, I can't explain it. So what instruments were being used? She said, I have no idea. What was it like? She said, it was wonderful. Tears start running. So who's the lyricist that puts the words to music we have yet to experience that will take even singers like Keith <laughs> to be a full voice and able to praise the Lord in every way, shape, or form. What's the song like? Oh, worthy, kids of the Redeemer, are you to take the scroll? Worthy are you, the only one that's worthy, to break those seals open. To open the seals, you were slain. Purchased for God your blood, with your blood from every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation, how much is left over after that? Is there any wiggle room in every? You have made them, us, a kingdom, priests to our God. You're not Levitical priests, but you are royal priests. You don't have to wait in the ante room. Jesus split the veil and says to you and me, pointing at the Holy of Holies, where the presence of God is always manifest, follow me. Walk in with me. It's now yours, kingdom of priests. And they, us, will reign on the earth. Just give me one of my eternal minutes, and all these seals will be opened. Oh, and stay tuned for the seventh seal, because it's a doozy. 
And in that seventh seal are seven trumpets of judgment. And in that seventh trumpet, there are seven pouring outs of the finality of God's wrath. And then we go back and occupy Dad's land, Dad's country. I've lost track of how many tours I've led to Israel. I spent a lot of summers there, went to school there for three years. Take a lot of young people over to dig. They pay me to play in the dirt. <laughs> my wife says she can't decide whether I'm doing history from the ground down or my career's in ruins. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to Israel. Maybe not as a tourist, perhaps not as a student, but certainly as the bride of Christ. You're going. And you're going to rule and reign with our risen Lord because he's coming back. And we'll be with him. I looked and I heard a voice from the many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the numbers of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. For the, for the terminally literal in our group, that's literally 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. That comes out to, for you mathematicians, 101 million. 101 million angels in the heavenlies. And they're all saying with a loud voice, what? Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power, riches, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing. Every created thing in heaven, every created thing on earth, every created thing under the earth, on the sea, and all things in them. I heard saying, Worthy is the Lamb. To him who sits on the throne, to the Lamb. To him who sits on the throne and the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever and ever. And the four living creatures and all the elders, they fell down and worshiped, and they couldn't help but say one thing again and again and again. Amen, 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 amen. So be it, so be it, so be it. There is a great right throne coming. Believers and unbelievers of all ages will stand before the king. They will be judged either his or not his. But one thing is clear of all things created. At that time and every moment in eternity beyond, every knee will bow and every tongue will fess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. Why are you not shouting? <laughs> Bunch of Presbyterians, that's what you are. <laughs> And I'm from Presbyterian stock, so I can do that. If this was a black church, you'd be climbing the walls right now because they punctuate what you're doing. You know exactly how you're doing. It's just one thing to do after this. Please forgive me for this. When the Jews sat at the foot of Mount Sinai, a bunch of recently extricated slaves, free and not knowing who they were or where they were going or what they were doing, God gave some instructions to Moses, 613 rules. 
And then he said to Aaron, you need to bless my people. And when you bless my people, you bless them in a specific fashion. When you bless them, say this. What he said to say is what I'm going to say to you. But understand, this comes down through the ages and is interpreted in many, many different, many different settings. And nowadays, rabbis close a congregational meeting in the synagogue by holding up their hands like this. You know what that is? Yeah, Leonard Nimoy, right? Live long and prosper. Well, where did Leonard, good Jewish boy that he was, get that? He got it from his rabbi in the synagogue. That's the shape of the letter, the Hebrew letter Shin, S-H-I-N. <laughs> Shin is the first letter of Shaddai, as in El Shaddai, God Almighty. So God Almighty says to you, Shalom. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. His panayim. May he raise his countenance over you and grant to you wholeness, wellness, completeness. Shalom. It's much more than an absence of war. It's being made whole once again. And he has done that in Jesus Christ our Lord. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Meadowbrook Church Podcast. For more information about our church, visit meadowbrook.org.